you, we'll be reading out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Far our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and is the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Amen. You can be seated. I'm going to pray here in a moment. So I know that's a little out of the ordinary. Uh, I'm going to pray here in a moment. But I think it only fitting that as we begin this sermon series in Second Thessalonians, before we jump into this letter... I'd like to give just a short introduction to it uh, to give us kind of an, uh, an understanding of what is going on and what, it, uh, what the background and uh, things of that nature are in regard to this letter and to give us a proper foundation as we begin. The letter of 2 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul. And, of course, you can see that in verse 1. It also lists two other men with him, Silvanus or Silas and Timothy, his young apprentice. It was written around A.D. 50, and in fact, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, tell us the reason that 2 Thessalonians was written, really the reason that 1 Thessalonians was written, and that is simply this, that um, when Paul and Silas and Timothy were in Thessalonica, uh, when Paul was there ministering with his cohort in Thessalonica, he uh, was there a short time, he was able to start the church, and then right after he started the church, they were run out of town. And because they were run out of town, he didn't get to finish sharing with them and teaching them and helping them grow. And in fact, he says in 1 Thessalonians that one of the reasons he was writing to them was that he might fill up what was lacking in them. And so he, write, he leaves quickly, and because he left quickly, he really wanted to know how the church was doing, so he sent Timothy in. Uh, under, the, uh, under the radar, as it were, to find out how the church was doing. And once Timothy found out how the church was doing, he came back and he reported to the Apostle Paul how the church was doing. And the Apostle Paul, of course, wrote 1 Thessalonians as a response to this report. Now, 2 Thessalonians follows on the heels of 1 Thessalonians uh, very quickly, in fact. And, and really, uh, the reason that it does, there are three things that are listed or three things that are spoken of in 2 Thessalonians that are extremely important for us to understand. The first thing that Paul addresses in 2 Thessalonians is the fact that they are dealing with immense persecution and hardship. And he actually says that in verse 4 of chapter 1, as you heard a moment ago. So he begins by discussing these afflictions, these persecutions they're dealing with. We don't know if they had gotten worse since 1 Thessalonians, but the one thing we do know is that they are continually 
happening, and they're still experiencing them at this point. The second one is that Paul was writing to them because if you remember in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul begins to discuss the second coming of Christ. Well, in 2 Thessalonians, apparently, whether it was from his letter, but it also could be, as we'll see later in 2 Thessalonians, Paul makes reference to the fact that it is possible that someone had written a letter to the Thessalonian church with Paul's name on it, even though it wasn't him, um, and, and made it seem like it was him, and they were teaching false doctrine about the second coming of Christ. So there was some confusion about the second coming of Christ. The third thing that he writes of is, we don't know the reason why, but apparently a group of people in the Thessalonian church decided that it was no longer important that they work. But in fact, that they, he refers to them as those who cause disruption and even calls them busybodies. Now, those three things are very important to understand because if you notice, 2 Thessalonians has three chapters. And the three chapters of 2 Thessalonians begin with him talking about their persecutions and hardships and how they're to respond. The second chapter is about the second coming of Christ and kind of helping them understand the details behind that. And the third chapter is about idleness and what God has called us to do and to not disrupt the church. So that's really the outline of the entire book of 2 Thessalonians. And I hope that as we today and, and the next seven weeks, as we walk through this passage, or this, this letter rather, verse by verse, what you'll begin to see is that 2 Thessalonians is a goldmine of truth, just as all the scripture is. The 2 Thessalonians is a goldmine of truth for you and I, both to live our lives out individually, but also to live our lives out as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the introduction to the book of 2 Thessalonians. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us and then we'll begin uh, our passage this morning. Holy and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the blessed opportunity you give us to come together and worship you and to worship with one another. Lord, I pray right now that as we open your word, we would not forget that when your word is opened... And your Holy Spirit, of course, is present. We can be changed by our interaction with you and our interaction with your word. And Lord, we can be changed by you through your word. So Lord, I pray that our hearts would be opened, that we might receive the truth from your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I almost said it again. I almost said you may be seated. I almost did that at the beginning of the first service too. Can we, can we get the lights up around here um, in the, the deal? I like looking at people's faces when I'm talking. Um, and they probably like to see their Bibles. Um, the, uh, so when we begin 1 Thessalonians, one of the, or 2 Thessalonians rather, we, we need to realize something. That the church, the evangelical church today, is struggling with an identity crisis. Uh, struggling to understand who she is to be. We're told today... That there are many things that make a church successful. In fact, this is the world I live in, so I can tell you, uh, you may be familiar with it as well. There's, it seems almost like there's a book or an article or a conference about every 30 seconds that comes out to tell uh, ministers and others how best to do church. That, that, there's, that if this, do this or if you do this, this is the silver bullet that will make you be the church that you need to be. Well, almost always... Uh, when that is done, there's, there is an example. There's something given where it says, uh, now here's the silver bullet and this is how you're supposed to do it. Let me give you an example of this church. And they put a church forth as a model for how we are to 
follow the Lord and live our lives out as the people of God. But when these churches are given, and when these churches are, are put forward as models of living, they're given as examples many times because of the size of their buildings <clears throat> or the size of their membership or by their movement away from traditional church, whatever that means, or their move toward traditional church, whatever that means, or their, their, their adherence to or by their amazing programs or by their giving records. It's to the point that every year they're given, we're told how many trophies they got and how they gave or what they did by their adherence to a particular non-essential doctrine of theology or by their denial of a particular uh, non-essential portion of theology or by their music or by their extremely handsome and, and dynamic pastor. Thank you. However... Even a cursory glance at the New Testament tells us that these things are not the measure of what the New Testament would deem successful churches. Our concept of success should never be tied up with worldly principles because when our, con our concept of success is tied up with worldly pursuit or principles, it will lead to worldly pursuits, theological compromise, and in the erosion of biblical conviction. These will only lead to a worldly identity. And as the body of Christ, we should strive for a godly identity. See, many people today want to believe that simply saying, I am a Christian or we are a dynamic church is enough to identify us. However, what we have to realize is that what we say we are is not what identifies us. But how we act, what we do, and specific attributes are what define us. Simply put, what we say does not define us. What we do and who we are is what defines us. We should be identified specifically. And the Apostle Paul gives us a great model for what we should look like as a church in these first few verses of 2 Thessalonians. And in fact, this morning what we're going to see is there are three things. Three things that we should be identified by. We should be identified by our continually growing faith. He says this in verse Three, I covered the information in verses 1 and 2 in the introduction. So um, verses two, uh, 3 and 4, beginning in verse 3, we are to be marked by our continually growing faith. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. So Paul believed uh, about the Thessalonians that it was a moral imperative for him. It was required that he thank God for their growth. That he thank God for who they were and what they were doing. It, you'll notice, if you, if you remember correctly, uh, 1 Thessalonians began with, we give thanks to God always in every remembrance of you. And here, it's no different. He says, 
we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So he begins 1 Thessalonians the same way he began 2nd or begins 2nd Thessalonians and that is giving thanks to God. But he says something different. He says we ought to give thanks because it's right. There's there's a there's an aspect that Paul is bringing out where he says it would be wrong for me to not thank God for you. But Paul is driven to thank God for what they are doing and how they are living. And he gives the reason. In fact, he gives several reasons, but here's the first one. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Your faith, your, your trust in God, your confidence in God, and your clinging to the gospel and the truth of Scripture. He says, because of your faith and that it is growing abundantly. The word here for growing abundantly, this is the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. It means to grow wonderfully or increasingly. Now this is a very important distinction that I want to draw right now. Paul is writing this letter and he's writing it to the Thessalonian church and he tells them that the first thing he thanks God for, the first thing that we could see as a model, as a characteristic of the model church put forth by Paul here, is their growing faith. And the distinction I want to draw is this. Paul is saying that he thanks God that the people in the Thessalonian church, in in the area of Thessalonica, the thing that identifies them is not that there are people coming to faith. He talks about that in 1 Thessalonians. He's identifying them as people who are continually growing in their faith. Why is this important? Well, because many church growth books and church growth quote-unquote experts will tell us um, that the most important thing is the numbers that we have. That we're supposed to grow in number. We grow in, and we're supposed to focus on how we can grow in number. And, and what you see here, it, what ends up happening is over time, this becomes an all-consuming passion and, and, and an obsession. And Paul doesn't say that I thank God always because people are coming to faith. Of course Paul is excited for people coming to faith. He says that in 1 Thessalonians. Here, he's identifying something else about them. Namely, not that that people are coming to faith, but that the people who are coming to faith are continually growing in their faith. This is something really important. It's distinct even from 1 Thessalonians. He says they are continually growing. So the first trait the Apostle Paul gives is their adherence to the gospel and their trust or confidence in the Lord. But he is not telling them, or at least not here, he's not thanking God for their initial claim to faith, their their coming to faith, but rather their continual maturing in the faith. This means the first identifier we're shown by the Apostle Paul is that we are to be far more concerned about growing in and living out our faith as disciples than we are any church growth principle. This is a principle made clear in the New Testament. What does this look like? Well, what it looks like is this. 
We're told today that, that the most important thing, and, and you know, we are a part of a convention. It's like, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of baseball. And one of the biggest things you know about baseball, if you're a fan of baseball, is this. People who love baseball count everything. You, you listen to a baseball game and they'll say, well, that's the seventh time he's thrown 23 pitches while playing a team west of the Mason-Dixon line while the wind was blowing from the northeast. Like they give every statistic known to man. Well, we're at the part of the Southern Baptist Convention is we count everything. Every year we turn into a thing called an annual church profile. And in that annual church profile, we tell them everything about the church, what we've done. The reason is they need to be able to put it down so they can give a report about how many baptisms there are. And then when you go, I've been to every one of them, I, associational stuff, state stuff, um, and then national stuff. There's always a deal where they want to put up and say, now look at this church. They've baptized this many people, and I have nothing wrong. I, I hold nothing against that. I want to baptize people. That means people are coming to faith in Christ. But when you put that up and you say, hey, look at this church. They've baptized 500 people a year for the last 10 years, but then you look over on the right-hand side of the report, and it says that they haven't grown in attendance in the last 10 years. They've actually gotten smaller there's a problem how do you baptize 500 people a year for a decade and not grow well it's because you have become more focused on people making a decision than you have on growing disciples see evangelism is important but you don't win them dunk them and drop them you have to actually help people grow in their faith we are not called to, we're not called to baptize people. We're called to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them. It's, it's different. Your command is not to go. Your command is to make disciples. So, well, but, but isn't it important that we grow? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. If you mean grow in faith, then the Apostle Paul would say yes. If you mean grow by numbers, well, that doesn't necessarily matter one way or another say why well we're given an exact model for this all the way back in acts chapter 2 in acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 we're told that the church did this the church devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to the breaking of bread to fellowship and to the prayers so that's what they focused on that's what they did and then it says and the lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved now, why is that important? You say, well, but aren't we supposed to share our faith? Yes. You know how you share your faith? You become a disciple, and as a disciple, you grow in your faith, and part of growing in your faith is that you share your faith so that others come to faith, that they might grow in faith, that they might share their faith, and so on, and so on, and so on. But did you notice the focus is on growing in your faith, not growing attendance numbers? So we're to be identified, not by these man-made measurements of success, but in the ever-growing depth of our faith. We're to be about the business of being disciples who make disciples. Period. And as we pursue this depth of our faith, just as we are identified with our growth in our faith, we should be identified by our continually increasing love he says it right here we ought always to give thanks to god for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing 
So um, he's continuing. So the reason he gives thanks to God always is because of their continually growing faith and their ever-increasing love for one another. It's important, too, he gives thanks because this statement right here, excuse me, this statement right here is an answer to, to Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. So Paul is saying, God answered my prayer, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God is doing this, that your, your faith is growing and your love is ever increasing. So the second reason that Paul feels obligated to thank God, the second reason that they are a model church, the first is that they are growing in their faith, the second is that they are increasing in their love for one another. So what is love? Well, see, regardless and, and even against what Hollywood or anybody else would have you to say, love is not a feeling. Affection is a feeling, but love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. Love is a determination to put someone else's needs and even wants above your own. Love is a relationship where I am not concerned about my needs. I'm actually concerned about your needs. And you are concerned about mine. See, what happens is we get this out of order and then we, we end up um, speaking to someone and saying, well, she just doesn't understand my needs. He doesn't understand my needs. But the problem is, is that this couple doesn't understand love. They understand a contract. See, love is a covenant between two people where I say, I'm never going to say, you're not meeting my needs. I'm asking, how can I meet yours? That's love. Well, Paul says that they are continually growing in their love. They're ever increasing in their love. This word means increasing considerably, profuse, or overabundantly. He's literally saying, I thank God because you literally stumble over yourself in excess to try to love one another. You are doing everything in your power to make certain that the other person's needs are met. He says, this is why I thank God. See, often churches who begin to see some form of what we would call worldly success, individuals in it, become, it can tend to become more concerned about what they like personally and begin, in fact, to try to find their identity in how we do it or how we don't do it here. And when this happens, we begin to hear more comments about how we individually prefer something or how we like something. Well, I don't like this. Well, I, uh, could we do this? Because I don't prefer this. But love for one another has... I'll be really clear here. Love for one another has nothing to do with what you like. And it has nothing to do with what I like. It has to do with what glorifies God and what helps our brothers and sisters grow in Christ. That's what love is. And continually growing in love would look like someone who is constantly putting other people before their own. Eastwood, as we continue to become the church that God desires us 
and call, has called us to be, we have to continually grow in our love and our concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ and their needs while simultaneously becoming less concerned with, quote, what I like or what I prefer or what makes me feel comfortable. In fact, one of the best things that could ever happen to a church is if we could erase the words I, me, and mine from our vocabulary. One, it's about us, and if I'm focusing on spiritual growth, my focus is on you. I want you to grow in Christ, just like you should want me to grow in Christ. And we do this together. That's showing love for one another. Your needs, your wants, your desires come before my own. We have to grow ever more into a people who are asking the question, how can I serve the Lord and His church in such a way as to benefit my brothers and sisters? And we need to spend less time focusing on how our preferences are being served. We need to continually grow in love for one another. That's what Paul says here. He, gives, he says, in fact, not only do I give thanks, but I ought to, because it's right that you are growing continually in your faith and you're growing increasingly in your love for one another. It's not simply enough to claim the name of Christ, our calling as God's people, the imperative on our life is there will be a pressure. You don't have to look very far. You don't have to look far at all to see that there's a pressure and it's increasingly more difficult to live out the gospel and to live the purposes of Christ in an ever-increasingly difficult public square. It becomes harder and harder to live that out. And when you have the wrong focus, when you believe that a successful church is one that grows numerically, and that's the only metric you use, then what happens is this. Because you have bought into a worldly model of success, and you have bought into worldly traits that identify churches of success, then what happens is, when things get hard, as they inevitably do, when things get pressed, as they inevitably will, what you do is you begin to back off the truth. You begin to back away from the things we know to be true. And yet here we see that not only should we be identified by our, increasingly grow, or our, our continually growing faith, and not only should we be identified by our ever-increasing love for one another, but we should, be, uh, we should be identified by our continually enduring stance. He says, therefore... We ourselves boast about you. The apostle says here, uh, the first two things, you're growing continually in your faith, you're growing ever increasingly in your love, therefore I boast. It's a really amazing thing, this word here for boast. It's not the normal word for boast in the New Testament. It's actually a rare word. Um, it, it means something more than just I walk around talking about you. In fact, it means to take, special, to take a special amount of pride in. This is what it looks like. This is the Apostle Paul as a grandfather talking about his grandchildren. So what does that mean? Well, if you've ever heard a grandparent talk about their grandchildren, you would think that their first grandchild, the moment their first grandchild walked, it was on the moon. Right? Like, I mean... You will never believe, right? It's, it's, I mean, 
I talk to my parents. My parents brag to me about my children. And it's like, well, why do they do that? Well, frankly, they have more time. I'm busy raising them. So they, they, they brag about their children, their, their, my children to me. The Apostle Paul says they're living in such a way and they're growing in their faith in such a way and they're loving in such a way that he actually goes to other churches and brags about them in a special, special way to, to, as if to say he plants a church, some people get together and then they say, Paul, how do we do this? And Paul says, you know what? Let's take a trip over to Thessalonica. Let me show you how church is supposed to be done. That's how this works here, right? He, this, is, this is a proud man, not proud in a sinful way. He's, he's proud of the way they are growing in Christ. He, so much so that he brags on them. He boasts on them. He says, we, about, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for what? For your steadfastness in faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. So he boasts about their steadfastness. He boasts about the fact that they remain firm. Notice this too. He says in their, in, in their afflictions and in their persecutions, and he says it that you are enduring. This isn't something that happened in the past. It's continually happening in this moment when he writes this letter. So it's not like, well, I'm glad that bad thing happened and you stood firm in it. He's saying, I'm, I'm glad that while these things are all happening to you and these multifaceted persecutions are occurring, that you are standing firm. You're not wavering. You're not shaking in your faith. But you're standing firm in the gospel. Now, if you were here when we went through our first Thessalonians series, we had ten sermons so you probably heard this next phrase referenced about 80 times. But Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, the entire design of 1 Thessalonians can be built around this phrase. He says, I give thanks to my God always in every remembrance of you for your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. He said, well, yeah, but that was 1 Thessalonians. I thought we got away from it. What did he just say he was thankful to God for? Their growing faith, their ever-increasing love, and their steadfastness. It's the exact same thing. He says, what I was thankful to God for now, uh, before in 1 Thessalonians, I now feel a moral imperative to thank God for the fact that not only do you have faith, but you're growing in your faith. Not only do you have love, but you're increasing in your love. And not only do you, are you steadfast, but you're remaining steadfast in the midst of persecution and difficulty. So, as they are enduring this, Paul tells them that these specific characteristics are that they don't waver in the midst of hardship. See, today, what ends up happening is when you put an emphasis on church growth, what happens is that over time, when that becomes your all-consuming obsession, see, that's what happens, especially with ministers, it, it becomes an all-consuming obsession. Where ministers are more, they, there was a day, and, and this is kind of a soapbox of mine, so I'm going to try to stay off of it too much, but there was a day when pastors and ministers were more concerned with making sure they were faithful to the truth, but now pastors are more concerned with just making sure that there aren't less people in the pews next week than there are today. 
When, when did it happen when pastors became more concerned with how people thought about them than what, about, than what the people thought about God? When did it become more important that we adhere to, to, to political correctness where we don't upset anybody by what we say than simply adhering to the truth of God's word? When did it become more important to make sure that a few people come and sit in these pews than it did to make sure people grow as disciples and end up in heaven when they die? When did it become more important that we have numbers on a board somewhere in Nashville than we do our adherence and our faithfulness to the truth of God's word? When did that become more important? See, we don't need a book to tell us how we're supposed to be as a church. We don't need a book to tell us how we're supposed to grow. We don't need a book to tell us what we're supposed to look like. He already gave us one. There's no reason to stray. There's no reason to get away from it. Because what happens, as I said, when we begin to accept worldly measures of success over time we gain a worldly identity because we become more consumed and more concerned with other things so then what happens if all i'm concerned about is making certain that there are more people here next week than there are today then i become more concerned with making sure no one walks away so because of that when i feel the pressure when we feel the push from the world and from the culture, which, by the way, ours is no different. It's been this way since Genesis 3. When we feel, because Noah dealt with a culture that didn't believe him either. So there, it's been happening forever. When we feel the pressure from a culture to tell us that we can't believe and can't say what we know is, to, uh, what we know is true, what happens when we're concerned with only church growth? We start to back off of what we believe. We start to soften what we believe. We start to say, well, you know what? If I say that, somebody might not come back. If I say that, somebody might not come. But if you don't say that, they might go to hell. We begin to do things in the name of getting along instead of glorifying God. Or they feel the need to add to the gospel. They feel the need to add to the truth of God's word. They feel the need to tell people that they are a relevant church. Can I tell you something? If you preach the word of God, you have never been more relevant. And that has nothing to do with your lights or your carpet or pews or chairs or anything other than the truth of God's word. See, because when we become consumed with what the world tells us, and even the Christian world tells us, is a model of success. When we become consumed by that, we can feel the need to soften things, to back off of things. Now, like I've said, you and I do not have the freedom in Christ to be offensive. But the gospel is offensive. You cannot be, I cannot be, but the gospel always is. Why? Because the first thing you have to believe to come to faith in Christ is you're a sinner. And when you don't believe you're a sinner and somebody tells you a sinner, that's offensive. But that's not me being offensive. That's the truth of Scripture being offensive. 
And when we don't want to offend people and we just want to attract people and we hear phrases like we need to preach attractional sermons and we need to be an attractional church and things like that. Last time I checked, I don't attract anybody. The Holy Spirit does that. And because of that, what we realize is, and I know it's still true, but in the New Testament, the model of the New Testament church has never been this other thing over here. The model of the New Testament church, in fact, is this. That the unashamed gospel that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, last time I checked, is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And the last time I checked, the, the, uh, the God-breathed scriptures that the Apostle Paul spoke about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, is still and are still the only things profitable that you and I may be complete, equipped for every good thing. Simply put, Eastwood, we should be different. Our goal is not to be popular. Our goal is to glorify God. It's to be holy. It is, yes, to be welcoming, of course. But it is also to be distinct and different. And if we're going to do this, then we have to stand firm in the midst of difficulty. How do you do that? Well, if you're growing in your faith and you're increasing in your love, here's the way it works. This is how you stand firm. You stand firm in the faith because you're growing in love for one another, which creates an amazing community of faith that holds one another up when things get hard. And how do you create that community of faith? By growing in your faith together. So if you're growing in your faith and you're increasing in your love, you will always stand fast when things get hard. The reason people are falling, dropping like flies is because they're not growing in their faith. They're more concerned about growing a church than they are in growing disciples. But if we will grow disciples, Acts chapter 2 tells us God will grow the church. So as we prepare, Eastwood family, over the next few months to really understand what the Lord has for our church. I said this in the first service, so I, I guess I have to say it now. I wasn't intending to share it in the first service, but I did, so it would be unfair for me to not tell you. The first Sunday in March, we have rented out the Nicely Center. We're having something called Legacy Night. On Legacy Night, we're prepping for it. Staff's working behind the scenes. We're getting some amazing things together. But what we're going to do on that evening, you're all invited. You just have to RSVP so we know how much food we need. But you're invited to come. And when you come, what you're going to hear is what I believe the Lord has laid on my heart as the vision for Eastwood Baptist Church for the next 30 years. That's a big vision. But he's an even bigger God. And I can tell you this, I can promise you this, no matter what you hear, it will not stray away from the fact that we are to be about the business of glorifying God by making disciples who make disciples, who grow continually in their faith, grow increasingly in their love, and stand fast when things get hard. That's the whole purpose. Why? Because that's what it's spelled out here. Not a special book not anything, it's this book. So you say, well, what's the new vision? It's not a new vision. 
It's the one that's been around for 2,000 years. It's the exact same vision that Jesus Christ gave for his church. That we grow continually in our faith. That we grow ever increasingly in our love for one another. And that we stand fast when things get hard and we don't waver from the truth. Eastwood, this is the inspiring identity that God has for our church. This is what God desires of us. May we strive to be all he has called us to be. You could be here this morning, and the truth is these three aspects, these three attributes, they don't, they're, they're not apparent in your life. The truth of the matter is that you don't have an ever-increasing faith, but that's because you've never placed your faith in Christ. You never trusted Christ initially. Or the truth is, if you've never received the love of Christ, then you can't love one another. And if you've never given your life to Christ, then you certainly don't have a hope that you can remain steadfast in. But you can have faith, hope, and love because they are found in Jesus Christ alone. And you can give your life to Him this morning by simply turning yourself over to Him, asking Him to forgive you of your sins, and placing your life in His hands. Church, Sometimes we say, what is the church supposed to look like? What is, supposed, what is our identity supposed to be? Who are we supposed to be as the people of God? And the calling is clear. We are to be the kind of people who glorify God by being disciples who make disciples, growing continually in our faith, growing ever increasingly in our love, and standing firm in the truth of the gospel once and for all delivered to the saints. And that is found in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray together.